Mao Zedong once quipped that the cardinal responsibility of leadership is to identify the dominant contradiction at each point of the historical process, and to work out a central line to resolve it. Regarding the study of Chairman Mao, that dominant contradiction is the fact that there exists a single person on this planet who still holds Mao Zedong up on a lofty pedestal. From my perspective, he isn't worth any level of worship. We have thus far examined Mao's early life, during which he lived for two years under the same roof with a wife that he would not speak to. We then joined Mao on his long march, which saw him run away from his children as well as his wife's grief. We next surveyed the school of Mao Zedong thought, which includes the deepest philosophical thoughts of a man who had to go out to his backyard just to alleviate his chronic constipation. We then took gardening lessons from a man who exported his starving people's grain before finally investigating his claims regarding capitalist roadies as justification for his encouragement of students murdering their teachers. Despite all of this, more than 85% of respondents to a 2013 Chinese government survey claimed that Chairman Mao's achievements outweigh his mistakes. This despite the fact that his mistakes in just the Great Leap Forward alone may have resulted in 40 million of his own people dying horrifically painful deaths as well as another 40 million individuals whom would have been born if not for the fact that his people were so hungry that they were either unwilling or unable to produce the next generation of Mao's victims. No other dictator has continuously maintained such high approval ratings after their death. Adolf Hitler is no longer in the forefront of Germans' minds. In fact, in 2016, Hitler ranked seventh when asked what person or thing they associate with Germany. Volkswagen, their national anthem, their soccer team, and even Willy Brandt, another former chancellor whom I've never heard of, ranked ahead of the man whose hatred plunged the world into war. Joseph Stalin's popularity has disappointedly undergone a renaissance in Russia since the former Soviet Union's 1990s failed experiment with democracy. Today, the Man of Steel's popularity outstrips current dictator Vladimir Putin, but the self-proclaimed gardener of human happiness was excised from communism's good graces by his successor Nikita Khrushchev. Saddam Hussein commissioned a 39-foot statue of himself, but its size didn't prevent it from being pulled down by a people who yearned to be free. And Libya's Muammar Gaddafi would have preferred it if it had just been a statue that had been pulled apart by the mob that captured him in 2011. None of these men reached the death totals of Mao Zedong. Yet the chairman continues to be worshipped to this very day in China, despite the many well-known mistakes that history has placed directly at his feet. His mistakes were so clear that even the Chinese Communist Party is forced to admit to them. But the government continues to justify their cult-like hero worship by officially declaring that Mao was 70% right and 30% wrong. Thus, the man whose policies resulted in the world's greatest amount of death is still having his legacy examined today. You're listening to Anarchy, Empires, and Other Notable Moments, a podcast designed for deep dives that assist in the teaching of history. This is the sixth and final episode regarding the life and legacy of China's most infamous dictator, Mao Zedong, his death. Mao's lasting appeal has been directly aided by the role that authority plays in the culture of the Chinese people. His ability to scapegoat others for what were clearly his mistakes aided his survival. In America, we value concepts such as liberty, justice, and equality. 
Chinese history goes back more than 2,000 years, while America's core values were rooted in ideals that the Revolutionary War were fought over. China's values harken back to a time when individuals had distinctly different values. Thus, China's chief cultural value, if there is such a thing, regards authority. This emphasis upon respect for authority harkens back to Confucianism, a religion which consistently preaches the golden rule, treat others as you wish to be treated. The 2,500-year-old Confucian religion teaches that leaders should come from the educated populace. That's a check for Mao, who deeply valued education, and that they need to be taught morals. Also a check for Mao, whose lifestyle choices seem to have all the thoughts of a pig. And yes, if you've listened to my prior podcast in this series, that is an insult to pigs. Thus, the Chinese people were preconditioned to tolerate poor moral choices for leaders that were perceived as at least attempting to do their best. Confucius also taught that moral obligations exist between groups of people. For instance, I am morally obligated to teach my students, even if I can't stand them. However, this is a two-way street, and my students are also morally obligated to learn from me, even if I might not be their favorite teacher. This way of thinking kept Confucius from leading a rebellion against the sitting government, despite the fact that that government was beyond morally corrupt and historically ineffective. According to Confucius's reasoning, a citizen's obligation to the government involves listening and following the rules, even if it isn't the best government. Respect for law and authority are enshrined within Confucian teachings, as is respect for your elders and the deceased. Even though the CCP went out of its way to routinely reject Confucian thought, the values that Confucius had sought to instill had taken hold of the Chinese people more than a millennium earlier. These concepts of accede to authority, respect the law, and honors one's elders enabled Mao Zedong to grudgingly admit his mistakes without fear of fomenting a rebellion. Respect for the government, particularly Mao, a hero of the Long March, and the successful defensive war against Japan, afforded him every chance to succeed. And when the mistakes became too big, even for the Chinese people, Mao was able to scapegoat his problems away. In Chinese society, the role of the leader is unquestioned as long as they are providing for their people. Thus, Chinese leaders feel the need to either distract or scapegoat their way out of problems to this very day. Professor Susan Shirk, a former Deputy Assistant Secretary of State whose responsibilities included China, refers to the country as a fragile superpower. In her book on the subject, Shirk warns that the modern government of China continues to be so concerned about losing their people's mandate that they remain willing to resort to extreme measures to manipulate their people. This includes the typical dictatorial moves such as jailing those who dissent, controlling the flow of news, and utilizing propaganda to paint their rule in the most favorable light possible. But it also includes some crazy concepts, such as one regarding the 2018 Beijing Olympic Games that Shirk describes in detail. In her professional estimation, there was legitimate concern that China, if it were embarrassed in the Olympic Games on their home turf, would have considered a cross-strait invasion of Taiwan in order to distract its people from their failure. The invasion thankfully never happened, but perhaps that's because the People's Republic won more gold medals than any other nation. The Great Leap Forward had posed a major challenge to the Chinese Communist Party's authority. Mao himself resigned from the country's day-to-day -day operations in 1959. His return to power began in 1966 with the launch of the Cultural Revolution. The Red Guard's excesses were visible from the start, but Mao was handed a lifeline from a surprising source, Richard Nixon's United States. 
eight years into the Cultural Revolution, China and the United States of America had just established diplomatic contact for the first time since the fall of Chiang Kai-shek. Nixon was mired without a lifeline of his own in a Vietnam War that wasn't of his own creation. The Department of State's Office of the Historian explains that reapproachment with China was pursued in order to, quote, improve relations with communist governments in Asia in the hopes that such a policy might lessen future conflict, undermine alliances between communist countries diplomatically isolating North Vietnam, and increasing U.S. leverage against the Soviet Union. Nixon went slow with the reapproachment first easing travel and trade restrictions and reopening talks about exchanging ambassadors. He even utilized the Pakistani president as a secret channel between his office and Chairman Mao's. It turns out that his moves were so controversial that the notoriously paranoid Nixon bypassed his own Department of State. The secretive process paid dividends and by 1971, it was time for ping-pong diplomacy to take center stage. As the U.S. national team took a goodwill tour around the previously closed-off mainland of China. This warming of relations had happened naturally through the goodwill of sport. Glenn Cohen, who is oftentimes described as a flamboyant hippie, was practicing with a Chinese player in Japan when an official unexpectedly closed their training area. Without anywhere to go, Cohen boarded the Chinese shuttle bus. It was his practice partner, Zhuang Zhidong, a three-time world champion who publicly welcomed Cohen aboard by shaking his hand and presenting a gift of a silkscreen portrait of the Hongshan Mountains that had happened to be in his bag. Cowan, the flamboyant hippie, searched his own belongings that he had brought with him to practice but only found a comb to offer in gratitude. Eventually, he was able to exchange with his counterpart a t-shirt with a red, white, and blue peace emblem emblazoned with the Beatles' immortal words of, let it be. Thirty years after the event, Zhuang Zedong gave his version of the events claiming that he hesitated for the first 10 minutes of the 15-minute shuttle ride. Zong tells us about the challenge which the ride posed for him. He, quote, grew up with the slogan, down with American imperialism. And during the Cultural Revolution, he continues, the string of class struggle was tightened in unprecedented ways. And I was asking myself, is it okay to have anything to do with your number one enemy? When newspapers took up Cowan's unexpected quote that he would like to one day visit China, the offer to do so came from Mao Zedong himself. Over the course of seven days, nine American players toured the Great Wall of China, visited the Summer Palace, took in a state-run ballet, and played a number of exhibition matches in front of massive audiences. President Nixon followed on February 21st, becoming the first commander-in-chief to visit mainland China during their presidency. At the end of the tour, the two sides jointly released the Shanghai Communique, which clarified each nation's divergent stance regarding Taiwan. Although the issue of Taiwan prevented the immediate normalization of relations, Nixon's visit in 1972 in the midst of a self-proclaimed cultural revolution which saw Mao's political enemies being tortured to death, students violently imprisoning their teachers, and the destruction of China's old culture. Nixon paved the way for normalization, a process that President Jimmy Carter would go on to complete in 1979. Mao was the huge winner of reapproachment, which enabled him to wrest power back from General Lin Bao, a man whose power had grown through prostrating himself publicly beneath Chairman Mao. The Association for Asian Studies reminds us that, 
on foreign policy matters, the Chinese leadership was divided between Zhao Enlai's moderates, who wanted closer relations with the U.S., and Lin Bao's fraction, which preferred close ties to the USSR. Mao tilted toward Zhao in 1970 in part because he feared that Lin was becoming too powerful. Mao also wanted advanced aviation and military technology, and he needed a strong partner in his conflicts with the Soviet Union and India. The USSR was their main supplier of advanced technology, but at this particular moment in history, the Russians were afraid that copy machines were being used to steal their state secrets. The association continues by stating that Mao's ego may also have played a role in his calculations. After several years of national isolation and the controversies of the Cultural Revolution, he may have hoped to reacquire international prominence. Lin had originally risen to prominence by championing the greatness of Chairman Mao. We have previously discussed his role in the creation and widespread adoption of the Little Red Book of Chairman Mao's quotations. Despite his role as the top general, Lin stood to the side as military barracks were attacked by Red Guards who sought to arm themselves with military-grade weapons. Most of the reforms that Lin made to the military were actions that he himself admitted would weaken the armed forces. Thus, in many instances, Lin took the role of Mao's top apologist. His loyalty had paid off after he took the official position of Mao's successor in waiting in 1969, although there are records that claim Lin had attempted twice to refuse the honor. The role of Mao's number two had become available after Red Guards had imprisoned and eventually killed Lin's predecessor, Liu Shaqi. It therefore makes sense as to why the PRC's general was reluctant to accept the promotion. Liu had gone from Mao's successor to naked in a cage, slowly dying of what were easily treated medical complications related to his diabetes. His chief crime had been in criticizing Mao's policies from the Great Leap Forward. Lin attempted to avoid a similar fate by always waiting until Mao had expressed his own ideological viewpoint so the general could then fall in line. The lone criticism that Lin levied at the chairman seemed to regard the issue of reapproachment with the U.S. While he was in charge, Zhao Enlai had ordered a serious internal look into the global positioning of the People's Republic of China. After diligent work, four of the nation's top military marshals had come to the conclusion that China's preferred path of avoiding anything that resembled anti-imperialism had placed them in a straitjacket of their own making. And that jacket was getting a little tighter each and every year. Their southern and eastern flanks were being militarily supported by the U.S. and its proxy states of Japan and South Korea. The world had risen up as one in condemning China's actions in Tibet, and its western border had the potential to erupt into war at any moment with the nearly equally populous Republic of India. Their first 20 applications to the United Nations had been summarily rejected and Lin Bao had championed the encouragement of a series of international Maoist uprisings in the Third World. 7% of Mao's feeble economy supported these ineffective efforts. The Khmer Rouge, responsible for the killing of between 1 to 3 million of the citizens of Cambodia, was a direct result of this spreading of Mao's thought. Maoist parties were established in developing nations including Afghanistan, Bangladesh, Ecuador, India, Iran, Palestine, the Philippines, and Peru, as well as established Western states such as Australia, Portugal, Spain, Sweden, Turkey, the UK, and the US. Lin's encouragement of revolutionary action attempted to apply the lessons of the Chinese Civil War during which the peasants had strangled Chinese cities into submission. By fueling Maoist insurgencies around the world, 
Lin hoped to strangle the capitalist superpowers. By 1970, however, the only thing struggling to breathe was the People's Republic. Without any revolutions bearing fruit, China's only international lifeline remained the Soviet Union, a nation-state that China viewed with intense suspicion. The four marshals even concluded that there were more serious contradictions between the world's two leading communist powers than between China and the United States. This was an explosive conclusion at the time. Keep in mind that Mao Zedong is still firmly entrenched in China. This wasn't yet Deng Xiaoping's capitalist institution, a nation whose supply-side economy pairs perfectly with the U.S.'s service economy. The final version of the report encouraged reapproachment as an attempt to strengthen China's international position and put them in line for a transfer of badly needed advanced Western technology. Lin Bao and Mao's wife, Jinping, were the loudest voices objecting to American reapproachment. Both had amassed serious amounts of power, likely because Mao had viewed them as proxies for his own thoughts and commands. 45% of the Politburo's 9th Central Committee were members of the military, and thus Lin Bao could call on incredible support, second only to Mao himself. The first sign of discomfort between the two men came when Mao rejected Lin's plea for the great helmsman to reclaim the vacant title of president. While Lin avoided Mao's infamous wrath, the general's right-hand man was publicly berated in what is now viewed as a clear break between Mao and Lin. Lin and his supporters pushed for China to continue moving even further to the left in conjunction with close support from the Soviet Union. They also privately sought to curb the excesses of the Cultural Revolution, as it was becoming clear that history would regard it in a similar light to Mao's great leap forward. Mao's distrust grew deeper after rumors spread in 1970 of disparaging remarks made privately to Zheng King at that year's Lushan Conference. It quickly became clear that Mao regretted his choice of naming Lin as heir to his throne. He ordered Lin to make a self-criticism, but unlike Deng Xiaoping, the general refused and remained outside of Mao's fiefdom of Beijing. He wasn't able to maintain a low enough profile to save himself, however. On September 13, 1971, Lin Bao's plane crashed in the quiet of night while en route to Mongolia. Mysteriously, the CCP didn't acknowledge Lin's disappearance until the summer of the next year. The death of the government's number two became officially known as the Lin Bao Incident, and the government's version of events contains a number of serious holes. Their timeline suggests that the general was planning a coup against the PRC by sabotaging Mao's personal train. The attempt was unsuccessful, reportedly due to the heroics of Mao's personal bodyguards. In light of his failure at wresting power from Mao's clenched fist, Lin chartered a plane bound for refuge in the Soviet Union. The crash had occurred because the pilot failed to fill the aircraft with enough fuel, and thus prevented the aircraft from reaching its destination. In part because of the purposeful destruction of all government documents related to the incident, historians suspect that Lin was killed before he ever left Beijing. Some of these plot holes in the story include the fact that the general had kept an exceptionally low profile during his rough patch with Mao. Also, his son wasn't on the plane that crashed with him, despite the government's claim that he had been a core contributor to the conspiracy. Surely Lin wouldn't have left his son to be tortured by Mao if he had known that his cover had been blown. Furthermore, the lack of acknowledgement of Lin's death for half a year is impossible to comprehend. This was the country's second-in-command and its top military leader. To many, he was viewed as the high priest of Maoism. The Mongolians were the first to inspect the wreckage. By their estimation, the flight had at least 30 minutes of fuel remaining, 
but it failed to activate both its landing gear and wing flaps at the time of their abrupt landing. A Soviet KGB classified report claims that the aircraft clearly had enough fuel to make it to a number of possible Soviet airports. The CIA also took a shot at explaining the incident. Their report in October of 1972 makes the claim that Lin's death was due to geopolitical infighting, writing that it was over the fundamental struggle for control of the political apparatus between Mao and his designated successors. No different from the Cultural Revolution purges of Liu Shaqi and Deng Xiaoping. In this instance, policy issues became the primary weapons for use in, rather than the causes per se of, such struggle. The policy issue that is singled out by the report was Lin's opposition to reapproachment with the U.S. Historian Zhang Chen uses declassified Western documents along with published Chinese accounts to pile on, stating bluntly that the purge of Lin Bao was a, quote, catalyst for Mao's foreign policy revolution to restore his reputation and authority. The general's death didn't go over well with the people of China. Britannica tells us that Lin had been the high priest of the Mao cult, and millions had gone through torturous struggles to elevate this chosen successor to power and throw out his revisionist challengers. They had in this quest attacked and tortured respected teachers, abused elderly citizens, humiliated old revolutionaries, and in many cases battled former friends in bloody confrontations. The sordid details of Lin's purported assassination plot and subsequent flight cast all of this in the light of traditional, unprincipled power struggles, and vast numbers of Chinese people began to feel that they simply had been manipulated for personal political purposes. Mao's prior purges had begun with discrediting his opponents many of whom played into Mao's hands by writing and signing off on their own self-criticisms. This time, Mao's opponent had disappeared for half a year, and then was dismissively announced as dead when his concealment could no longer remain a secret. Mao's propaganda wing quickly went on the offensive with an anti-Lin Bao campaign. Supposedly, the general had been betrayed by his own daughter, a storyline of treachery which runs afoul of traditional Chinese deference to family and authority. Lin's son, who likely was the only family member who was actually on the ill-fated plane at the time of its sudden surprise landing, was officially rebranded as a deviant after the state claimed that he had run a secret sex shop trafficking operation. Georgetown University's Thomas Robinson shares a possible version of the truth regarding the Lin Bao incident. To fill in the missing gaps, he utilizes a manuscript that is supposedly written by a Chinese official under a pseudonym to protect their identity. Professor Robinson writes that Lin Legu, Bao's son, twice tried to kill Mao by rocket ambushes of the chairman's train and was held back on both occasions by Lin Bao himself. Mao, discovering these plots against his life, lured Lin Bao and his wife to a last supper at his opulent Peking residence, after which he neatly demonstrated how an ambush should be conducted by carrying out a missile-slash-machine-gun attack against Lin's limousine as it descended from Mao's suburban mountain retreat. The Lins were burned to death, he writes. Once Lin's fate was understood by his son, he raced to commandeer an Air Force Trident jetliner, but it was intercepted and crashed later in Mongolia. Robinson concludes that the son's assassination attempt of Mao would probably have succeeded if Lin had chosen to carry it out. There was no doubt, for instance, that Mao's train would have been destroyed by the planned rocket attacks. If the Soviet Union had cooperated by working with Lin to do its part in the coup attempt planned in late September, or by actually invading China after Lin's forces had deliberately provoked them, Mao might have been forced to expose himself to Lin's death plot. 
The reason neither the train ambushes nor the invasion-induced scenario worked, according to the manuscript's author, was that Lynn hesitated at the last minute, literally in the cases of the ambushes, and that Mao somehow found out what Lynn was up to and preempted him. It was thus a contest of personalities, the cautious, carefully planning Lin versus the more flamboyant, risk-taking Mao. In the end, the more Machiavellian won. Each knew the other was out to kill him. Mao merely was more ruthless. He knew Lin's limitations better and traded on Lin's previous half-century of loyalty to do him in. The death of Lin Bao cleared the remaining opposition to reapproachment, and Nixon visited China over the period of eight days in 1972. As part of the rehearsed television event, Mao began by poetically stating for the record, So many deeds cry out to be done, and always urgently. The world rolls on. Time passes. Ten thousand years are too long. Seize the day. Seize the hour. Nixon then fulfilled his role by stating, This is the hour, this is the day for our two peoples to rise to the height of greatness which can build a new and better world. Whatever Mao's hopes for the immediate future were, they would not come to pass under his watch. Some point to the dramatic events related to the purge of Lin Bao as the reason that from 1972 on, Mao's health steadily deteriorated. Stress had been known to previously cause health complications for the chairman. When he was 31 years old, leadership fights over the CCP had triggered intense weight loss, insomnia, and chronic constipation. Prior to and during the long march, Mao came down with multiple cases of malaria. When Stalin had sidelined him to a position of irrelevance during his Moscow birthday bash, Mao had suffered from sustained and unexplained weakness that likely proved the existence of a psychosomatic syndrome. Beginning in 1971, Mao experienced possible early heart failure, but refused traditional treatment, instead relying on the traditional Chinese emperor's belief that sexual relations with those younger than you would extend your lifespan. He was a lifelong chain smoker, only stopping in 1973. Combine that with pulmonary tuberculosis and the normal stress of running a nation, and one imagines that his heart was under intense pressure at all times. There's growing belief that the chairman suffered from either Parkinson's or ALS, a disease that gradually robs the individual of muscle control. His worsening health as well as the abrupt death of his heir opened the door for others to fill the vacuum of power. That group became known to the pages of history as the Gang of Four, although they preferred the title the Shanghai Clique. Zhang King, Mao's fourth and final wife, was the leader of the clique. Zhang had always sought out power for herself, amassing a loyal set of followers in the Politburo that placed her only behind her husband and Lin with regards to support. She rose to power due to her closeness to her husband and parlayed their partnership into the job of leading the Minister of Propaganda, specifically utilizing elaborate operas to spread the word of the greatness of her husband. She was a woman who was never beloved by the party and who was privately sneered at. Many believed that the excesses of the Cultural Revolution were directly the result of Zheng's encouragement. The first of her so-called gang was Zhang Xinhui, the head of the Shanghai Communist Party and an outspoken supporter of the Red Rebels, a particularly radical branch of the Red Guards. Yao Wenyan was the next up in the clique's lineup. Yao was a noted propagandist who was close to Zhang. Wang Hongwen was the last and youngest member committed to the coup. By the age of 39, Wang, a trade unionist, had already been named to the status of vice chairman, a level only reserved for five party members. Aware of her own reputation, Zheng was pushing for Wang to be the next heir apparent to Mao Zedong. 
Together, the group stood ideologically opposed to the moderates in government, and like Lin, they continually sought to push the party even further to the left. Their vision for the People's Republic was one of continuous revolution born purely by the will of the overzealous peasants. To them, it wasn't technical know-how or international support that would ensure the future of the Chinese people. Instead, as it was in the Great Leap Forward and the Cultural Revolution, the people's love of Mao and the party would be enough to achieve the policy aims. Their scheming was done within Politburo meetings, with Mao choosing between their recommendations and those offered by the dwindling numbers of moderates that remained in the party. It was Mao himself who coined the name Gang of Four, after warning his wife to drop one particular request in 1974 that she had been incessantly asking for. He told her to cease her intrigue and conspiracies and to stop acting like a Gang of Four. The gang's influence over the party, however, only increased as the Cultural Revolution continued. Mao couldn't forsake them completely, as their propaganda efforts were essential to justify the murders that were directly encouraged by his regime. The Gang of Four's downfall came via over-reliance on their singular strength. Zhang's marriage to Mao had shielded her for decades from their enemies, and their control of the party's propaganda apparatus ensured that they could put themselves in the most favorable light possible. But in preparing to take over, the gang seemed to only focus on their propaganda efforts, allowing other factions to continue to oversee the day-to-day -day running of the country, including things such as transportation and economics. When it came time to make their move, they were politically outclassed by the moderates who controlled the inner workings of the nation. Which is where Deng Xiaoping makes his unlikely return to our story. The death of Lin Bao had proven to be a uniquely destabilizing event for Mao's rule. By this point in time, Deng Xiaoping had already been deemed fully reformed after publishing a scathing self-criticism and serving out his exile in a tire factory. He even bit his tongue about the fact that his son was thrown out of a window as part of Mao's purge. Deng was now the most experienced and influential of all remaining army leaders, and thus he was recalled to action in the wake of Lin's death. Premier Zhao Enlai was also instrumental in rescuing his friend from a more grisly fate. Deng Xiaoping was named first vice premier in October of 1974, in part to appease the military at the purge of their commander, and in part to hedge against the growing power of Mao's wife. For practical purposes, this meant that he was now running the daily affairs of the country. Careful to avoid his prior mistakes, Deng made no move to publicly or privately contradict the chairman. As was to be expected, the gang quickly zeroed in on Deng as an impediment to their intended takeover. The moderates and the ideologically extreme left were locked in a battle of political theater. Mao seemed to enjoy playing the two sides off of each other, keeping each side focused on the other rather than on his throne or worse, on his legacy. Everything changed, however, on January 8, 1976, with the death of Zhao Enlai. Like Deng, Zhao had been with Mao from the beginning, and had barely survived his own political purging. Zhang had an intense burning hatred of Zhao. His adopted daughter was targeted for persecution, and died at the hands of the Red Guard after she had been repeatedly sexually assaulted. His adopted son followed his sister with his own violent death at the hands of the Red Guard. The Gang of Four directed three separate concentrated propaganda campaigns in an attempt to bring Zhao and Lai down. He was a survivor, however, and knew exactly when to kowtow to the chairman and when to present himself as the balancer against the clique's increasing power. In other regards, 
the moderate is described as a tumbler who jumped from one political opportunity to the next. But everything that he did was done through the lens of pleasing Mao, to the point that some claimed he had zero independent thoughts of his own. Gao Wen Quan, the official party biographer of Zhao, reveals that cancer, plus a mischievous Mao, were responsible for finally ending the statesman's life. Zhao's doctors had diagnosed him with an early form of bladder cancer. This particular cancer was curable, but the diagnosis was ordered by Mao to be kept secret from the patient. By the time that outward signs of the cancer were evident, it was too late to save the moderate's life. Zhang could not resist getting one more shot when her political enemy finally departed from this earth. The Gang of Four, at her urging, initiated the Five No's campaign, which included no public worshipping or memorialization of Zhao and Lai. A few months after Zhao's death, the Chinese people spontaneously memorialized him in Tiananmen Square on April 4th. The annual Qing Ming Festival is a traditional day of paying homage to deceased ancestors. This impromptu public memorial gained notoriety quickly, and hundreds of thousands, if not millions, came out with messages of appreciation for the deceased leader, as well as some targeted criticism of Zhang and her cronies. A few were even brave enough to criticize Mao himself. This, as you might imagine, quickly drew the ire of the great helmsman. After a day of protests, the CCP decided to end the impromptu tribute. As a prelude to the Tiananmen Square massacre, which would occur during Deng Xiaoping's reign in 1989, the police and military moved in on April 6 to violently remove the protesters. A riot broke out but the police were victorious without causing any known fatalities. It took a few months into his death, but Zhao had finally opposed Mao's regime. The still-living Deng, however, wasn't quite as lucky, as he was once again stripped of all titles and honors for his perceived closeness to Zhao and Lai. Again, however, Deng was able to retain his official Communist Party card-holding status as Mao told his subordinates, let him keep his party card to show to his descendants. Death struck China again six months later on September 9, 1976, this time taking Mao Zedong at the age of 82. Historian Emmanuel Sue reveals to us that, quote, 1976 was a year of agony for China. Deep bereavement was felt in every corner of the land over the loss of three of its great leaders. Premier Zhao Enlai in January, Marshal Zhu Di in July, and Chairman Mao Zedong in September. Added to human grief was a series of natural disasters. In July, a major earthquake demolished the industrial city of Tangshan, and during the next two months, the Yellow River flooded seven times. Compounding the human misery and political instability was the succession crisis precipitated by Mao's wife, Zheng Qing, and her associates. It was a time of sorrow, yet like darkness before dawn, also a time of hope. Out of disorder, a new order was struggling to be born, and with it was the promise of greater stability, progress, and a better life for the people. Remember how I told you that Zhang King wasn't the most popular lady among the Politburo? The gang used all of their propaganda influence to bury Deng six feet under, but Mao's successor, Hugh Gaofeng, had other ideas. Most teachers blip over Hugh in their rush to get to Deng Xiaoping, 
but Hugh was the designated heir that lived, even if his success was purely because he was the heir at the moment of the chairman's death. He didn't wait long to figure out what the job entailed. Within one month, he had lured two of the members of the Shanghai clique to a meeting designated to discuss the fifth volume of Mao's selected works. Each was given a different starting time for the meeting, and both were promptly arrested upon their arrival. The remaining two were taken within their residences. A show trial was hastily arranged, and the gang were charged with anti-party and anti-socialist acts, as well as conspiring to usurp power. Hugh's coup d'etat to head off the Gang of Four's attempted coup was perfectly executed and backed by the military. Outside of their own offices, the Gang of Four was allyless without Mao to shield them. Pro-government groups were immediately dispatched to stabilize Shanghai, and Hugh met with the Politburo the next day in order to explain his actions in detail and to assume control of both the chairman of the Central Committee and Central Military Commission, making him the commander-in-chief as well as the chief executive of the state. It was a perfectly led takeover by an experienced bureaucrat. The court's determination of a guilty verdict was decided before the trial had begun, and three of the four defendants refused to even argue on their own behalf. Zhang King was the lone protester, claiming in her defense that she was merely Chairman Mao's dog, quote, biting only whomever he asked her to bite. Yao escaped with a 20-year imprisonment, but the other three were sentenced to life. Zhang's prison life was not cushy, and after years of regular beating, she was eventually released in 1991 upon being diagnosed with throat cancer. She would go on to take her own life at the age of 77, but viciously got one last swipe at Deng Xiaoping for her downfall, writing in her suicide note that today the revolution has been stolen by the revisionist clique. Chairman Mao exterminated Lu Shaqi, but not Deng. And the result of this omission is that unending evils have been unleashed on the Chinese people and nation. Chairman, your student and fighter is coming to see you. Hugh Golfeng pardoned Deng Xiaoping and cleared him of all perceived crimes. As a repayment for the kindness, Deng allowed Hugh to retire quietly after he maneuvered to oust him from power. Deng settled in to become what CNN referred to as a reformer with an iron fist. Deng would go on to serve as the next dictator of the People's Republic of China, overseeing the implementation of the one-child policy, the Tiananmen Square massacre, and the mass execution of Chinese criminals. As a reformer, Deng Xiaoping opened up and adjusted China's economy to allow for markets to take root, resulting in the economic growth that Mao had always desired, but never known how to obtain. His four special economic zones brought capitalism to the mainland, and once proven were expanded throughout the nation. Under Deng's rule, it was no longer shameful to desire to be rich. But Mao's shadow remained looming over Deng's rule. Unlike Khrushchev, Deng never denounced his former boss, instead enshrining Mao's personality cult in place so that he could claim the benefits as if he were the designated heir. China's newest dictator shifted nearly all blame for the Cultural Revolution to the Gang of Four, clearing Mao's name in the process. Thus, the legacy of Mao continues to this very day. We'll turn to historian Lee Edwards to jumpstart our discussion on the lasting legacy of Mao Zedong. Edwards begins with a timely reminder that Mao's decisions likely killed more individuals than any other historical figure. But worse, in this particular historian's eyes, were who the targets were. Edwards writes, For Mao, the number one enemy was the intellectual. 
The so-called great helmsman reveled in his bloodletting, boasting what's so unusual about Emperor Shi Hong of the China dynasty. He had buried alive 460 scholars only, but we have buried alive 46,000 scholars. In Edward's eyes, this vicious assault on intellectuals held back China, as it seemed did all of Mao's policies. The China that Mao had seized via the Chinese Civil War was a backwards agrarian society. Mao's policies didn't transform the People's Republic in the same way that Stalin's gulag systems did. The sin was not the suffering that his policies caused. It was in the lack of results that they had earned. The bottom line is that Mao's suffering-inducing policies had moved the country further from modernization. After the disastrous Great Leap Forward, moderates had managed to rush in in order to stabilize the nation and put it back on the path towards growth. Their thank you from the chairman involved their loved ones being thrown from windows and sexually assaulted by Mao's gang of indoctrinated thugs during the Cultural Revolution. Unwilling to accept this failure, he launched a mass murder campaign that was designed purely to entrench his rule for what appears for the time being to be till infinity. Until Mao, China had become one big great house of fear. More than 1,000 forced labor camps were created during Mao's time in charge. Tibet came under his control, and he systematically worked to eliminate Tibetan Buddhism from the world. His work in this department continues, as current President Xi Jinping has expanded China's system of concentration camps to contain the vast majority of Chinese Uyghur Muslims. Under Deng Xiaoping, China arrested the 11th Panchen Lama, the reincarnated Buddhist who is destined to find the next Dalai Lama, Tibet's spiritual leader. Rather than killing the Panchen Lama, China abducted him and to this very day won't say what has become of the Enlightened One. The implications of this are beyond cruel for Tibetan Buddhists. When the Dalai Lama passes from his mortal body to be reincarnated in the body of a child, it is the Panchen Lama's duty to find the body of their leader's reincarnated soul. But not knowing the fate of the Panchen Lama has serious implications for the faith. Let's imagine that the Tibetans name a new Panchen Lama in order to find their next Dalai Lama. In that instance, the Chinese can bring their prisoner out of his hidden cell in order to point out the existence of two Panchen Lamas, which would be a problem considering that even the top-level Buddhists aren't enlightened enough to split their soul during the state of Nirvana. If the Panchen is in fact already dead, on the other hand, the Chinese can compare the ages of the appointed Panchen to the timeline of the original Panchen's death, further pointing out the discrepancies within the faith. In short, their decision to continue to this very day to not announce the fate of the Panchen Lama amounts to an attempted genocide of the Tibetan Buddhist faith. Perhaps because of the implications, the current Dalai Lama has announced that this his 14th lifespan, maybe his last, and that he perhaps will not seek to return upon his death. Capitalism reigns supreme in China today, but the Chinese take on the economic system of Adam Smith is at times guilty of the worst sins of capitalism. Intellectual property rights are routinely laughed away by Chinese courts and state-run monopolies crush competition from abroad as they are able to take a loss by artificially lowering their price to put their competitors out of business. Today, these monopolies have led some Americans to wonder if we need to ignore our own monopoly laws in order to have pro-American businesses capable of competing with their Chinese counterparts. The dangers of all of this are right in front of our eyes. For my students, their life is constantly being documented on social media. Foremost among them are TikTok, 
a seemingly innocuous platform for them to share off their latest dances. But TikTok is run by a Chinese company with direct ties to the Chinese government. The algorithms that are used by all social media platforms for targeted advertising feels more sinister when they are looked at by the Chinese Communist Party. With deep fake technology proliferating and our faces increasingly being used to guard our sensitive online data, individuals openly wonder about how safe it is to willingly hand over all of our private information. It will be interesting to see what China does with all of that information that we are freely giving them when this generation becomes eligible to run for president. But let's assume that, like me, you haven't yet achieved TikTok fame. For the scholars among us, China hasn't been hiding their true intentions. Their stated policy of Made in China 2025 is an ambitious plan to overtake the global manufacturing sector by 2025, making all other manufacturing operations across the globe redundant. Their publicly stated policy is thus to create an artificial state-led monopoly for the world's industrial sector. To this very day, Mao remains front and center with his image still adorning Tiananmen Square. Professor Edwards wonders out loud if world leaders would be so quick to kowtow to China if in the middle of Beijing there was a mausoleum of Hitler and hanging from the gate of the Forbidden City, a giant swastika. The obvious answer would be no, because of our immediate and visceral rejection of all things Nazi. Yet keep in mind how much we willingly buy from China, despite the indisputable fact that China's former elementary principle killed more individuals than Germany's fear. And the numbers aren't even close. Modern-day revisionism is continually working overtime to maintain Mao's influence. Andy Warhol is just one of the Westerners responsible for ignoring the violence that was inherent to the chairman's life. His colored Mao collection remains one of the most famous works of American art and still resides within New York's famous Metropolitan Museum of Art. In fact, there remains an entire art form that is commonly referred to as Mao Pop, which sustains his status as a cultural icon. You can even purchase a Mao Pop copy of The Last Banquet, which reinterprets Da Vinci's Last Supper only with Mao and his disciples in the place of Jesus. His policies may have been utter failures, but still the worst of the man's ideas remain permanently embedded within the secretive Chinese state. Mao Zedong was a little man who craved affection and acclaim, a man who could not set himself aside for the betterment of his people. As his disgrace grew, his hunger for approval grew larger in turn, and his inability to step aside and let others clean up his mistakes meant that every failure required another mass purge in order to reset his legacy. Upon his death, not a single person in the countryside of China shed a tear for their overseer. I'll end with the words of historian Frank Decatur, who points out the difference between Mao and his contemporaries, telling us that, quote, Mao entered a mausoleum, just like Stalin, Unlike Stalin, however, he remained there. His portrait still hangs high in Beijing while his face beams from every banknote in the People's Republic. Mao used the cult to turn others into adulators who enforced his every whim. He made party leaders accomplices to his crimes. And by becoming complicit, they and their successors turned themselves into the custodians of his image.